Hello, and welcome to Vibrant Lives Podcast, a podcast dedicated to your health and well-being, featuring interviews with experts about nutrition, physical health, mental health, and my five-minute food fact series, which are short episodes where I discuss nutrition-related topics. I'm Amanda Hayes, your host. I'm a lawyer-turned-nutritionist, and I'm on a quest to learn as much as I possibly can about living a healthy, active, and fulfilling life, which I would call a vibrant life, and sharing with you what I learn on this podcast. As most of you know, the health and nutrition space can be a really confusing one, where information and misinformation abound, and identifying reliable, trustworthy sources of information is not always straightforward. My aim is to help you do that by speaking with knowledgeable guests who can explain their area of expertise in an accessible way and provide you with practical tips that you can use to improve your own well-being. Before I introduce today's guest, I'll quickly acknowledge that any information or advice provided in Vibrant Lives podcast is not intended to be used to treat or prevent medical conditions, and it's never a substitute for advice from your own health professionals. I have an exceptional guest with me today, Dr. Tabitha Healy worked for 20 years as a medical oncologist and she now has what she describes as a portfolio career where she works as an executive leadership and well-being coach, a clinical hypnotherapist, she's a speaker and clinical tutor at Adelaide University Medical School. Tabitha runs her own coaching business, Small Moments, Big Lives. We'll discuss the interesting trajectory of Tabitha's career, but the main focus of today's episode is on Tabitha's work as an executive and personal coach. She'll share with us some valuable insights on how we go about achieving what matters to us, and we'll touch on her fascinating work in medical hypnotherapy. Hi, Tabitha. Thank you for coming on Vibrant Lives podcast today. Thanks so much, Amanda. It's uh, a fabulous experience to be here. (laughs) Well, it's such a pleasure to have you, and I'm really excited about our interview today. I'd like to start with some quick-fire questions, Tabitha, to get to know a little bit about you outside your work as an executive leader and well-being coach, clinical hypnotherapist, speaker and clinical tutor at the Adelaide Medical School. So there's a lot you do and we will get into that. First of all, where did you grow up? So I grew up in Canberra, which was uh, an interesting social experiment. So they built suburbs where they shifted families in who had young children. So everyone in the suburb was the same age. Everyone had two children of the same age. So it was a sort of a weird, free childhood. Everyone grew up together. And then I moved to Adelaide when I was 16, which was probably the best thing that ever could have happened to me. Oh, really? Well, that sounds interesting. It's nice living uh, with a group of people um, of a similar, you know, with children similar age, so you mm. can grow up and play together and, and all of that. So. Absolutely. So, mm. yeah, lots of freedom, lots of street play. Yeah, nice. Uh, your favourite form of exercise? Uh, so that would be each morning my beautiful border collie drags me up Mount Osmond. So, yeah, we get up there pre-dawn, watch the sunrise, a bit of meditation up there, and then return down in time for the household to be waking up. Oh, that's so nice. So what time do you head out for that? Uh, usually just after six, which right. in winter is fairly arduous. Yeah. Uh, summer it becomes a bit earlier just to escape the heat, but it's just a beautiful way to set up the day. Mm, and from there, for people that are not from Adelaide, it's a really gorgeous view over the whole city and looking out to the ocean. And it's lovely, isn't it? Yep, absolutely. Mm. And your go-to meal for dinner, Tabitha, if you're cooking for your family? Oh, I'm stuck between two worlds. So I've got a 16- and 17-year-old boys who require protein and carbohydrates. And and lots of it. Masses of amounts. (laughs) And my husband, who's a vegetarian. So I sort of tend to eat somewhere between the two. So lots of Brussels sprouts with a little bit of meat on the side would be my meal. Your meal. Mm -hmm. And are you currently reading anything? Uh, So my reading, and I have to really think here about what's on my bedside table. So... uh, Dan Pink, The Power of Regret. So Dan wrote uh, Drive about intrinsic and extrinsic mm-hmm. motivation, and now he's writing about how important regrets are to actually motivate us and, right. and push us forward, which is a great book because we all tend to talk about, you know, no regrets, yeah. but in actual fact he talks about the fact that regrets are essential in terms of uh, remodelling and designing mm. your life. The other books are Wabi Sabi, given to me by a oh, friend, yes. which is lovely, um, by Nobu uh, Suzuki, I think, mm. uh, and I love the concept of wabi-sabi. Nothing is perfect, nothing is finished, and nothing lasts forever. Uh, and then I'm just uh, finishing off uh, Devotion by Hannah Kent. So 
So oh, fantastic. Moment, so yes. lovely combination. Mm, I'm the same. I always have several on the go <laughs> at once. And are you listening to anything at the moment that you might be enjoying, a music, podcast, audio book? So my music currently is homage to the death of dear Olivia Newton-John. Oh, so I've got the Olivia Newton-John uh, playlist happening, mm-hmm. which is a fabulous way to kick off the day. Uh, my end of day music is Ludovico Enoldi, who's an Italian pianist, mm-hmm. beautiful, Gorgeous. calming music. And then my podcasts when I'm driving around are a combination of the Huberman Lab, which is a great guy called Andrew Huberman, who's a neuroscientist and mm-hmm. professor of ophthalmology at Stanford. He's got really science-based health and well-being podcasts. Uh, and there's WorkSmart Hypnosis, because I'm obsessed with hypnosis currently. Excellent. By Jason Lynette, very fascinating podcast. And my third go-to is always Dr. Rongan Chatterjee, who is uh, Feel Better, Live More, and he's a GP in England who Great. does health and well-being. So. Excellent. I'll, I'll look those up and put links in the show notes. They sound fantastic. And your dream holiday destination? My local is Goolwa Beach, uh, fabulous and low-key. My Australian destination is Noosa with the kids. And my husband is currently planning a ski trip in the Dolomites in January where we, I think, will be traversing the Dolomites by ski lift. Wow. uh, Carry on luggage only so we can carry all our gear. Uh, So it'll be an intriguing holiday and I just passively go along and I'm a a happy participant. Yeah, it doesn't sound very passive, traversing the Dolomites. (laughs) We did it on foot a couple of years, or pre-COVID, so we walked across the Dolomites from refuge to refuge and it was uh, fantastic. So we're sort of looking at recreating that on skis. Oh, wow, that sounds fantastic. Mm. Wow. So, Tabitha, like many women that I've interviewed on Vibrant Lives podcast, you've changed careers. And a fairly common pattern that I've witnessed is women moving from a corporate space um, and pursuing something that they feel more passionate about or more aligned to. And that often ends up being in a space where they're helping others or contributing in some way to the community. So as I said, you've changed careers, but you've always chosen roles where you've supported others. So I'm, I'm really intrigued to hear more about your story. For two decades, you worked as a medical oncologist. Did you always know that you wanted to study medicine? (laughs) Unfortunately not, which I feel really bad about because there's a whole generation now working so hard Mm. to get into medicine. Mine was very accidental. I was going to be a secretary. I was heading off to TAFE in year 11 because I was very badly behaved (laughs) and uh, not attending school very often. And then uh, a beautiful teacher took me aside and said perhaps I had more potential than I gave myself credit for. And I luckily started going out with a guy who was really smart and wanted to do medicine. So hanging out with him meant that I studied. Uh, I inadvertently got a good mark and thought, oh, well, I might as well do med. So it was an appalling start, but ended up being a fantastic career choice for me. Just loved the clinical interaction, loved the wards, loved Mm. dealing with patients. So it was great. Now, that's very interesting. I wonder if you would have ended up there in any event um, or or maybe – if you'd started a secretarial course and perhaps found it a bit boring or limiting, oh, who knows? We'll never mm, know. Hard to we? know. Yeah. Probably not, I think. it was. Yeah. There's nothing in my family that would have led to right. heading down that pathway. Oh, so interesting. And you chose to specialise in oncology. So why that choice? Uh, once again, process of exclusion, sadly. So I found out that I have a really unfortunate aversion to blood, mm-hmm. pus, sputum and vomit. <laughs> that rules uh, out quite a few. <laughs> it takes out an awful lot of what you do in medicine. I spent a lot of time unconscious because I used to faint all the time. <laughs> so oncology was a specialty that was very much relationship-based and talking. And when I started in it sort of 25 years ago, uh, there wasn't that many treatments. So it was really about relationships. Right. And, uh, and that was where I found my my passion and loved it. Uh, And then over that 20 years, it really changed the explosion of targeted therapies, Mm -hmm. which just changed the face of cancer treatment, ultimately made it a very technical field. Right. And it was almost probably that that um, changed my love of it in some regards. It became very science-based, technology-based, and it it almost detracted a little bit from the relationship. Mm -hmm. And I believe that you specialised in treating young women with breast cancer and ovarian cancer. So I imagine that working with these women and their families at their most vulnerable time, and you could probably see yourself as a young woman working with young women, I wonder if it was more than a job and if it could take over or become your whole life. Did that happen for you? Uh, 
Absolutely. And one of my colleagues used to always say, be careful what you wish for, because I wanted to be a specialist mm. in, in young women with breast and gynae malignancies uh, because they're a beautiful population. There were treatments that worked really well. Mm-hmm. You could really improve quality of life. Uh, not many people get to go to work and say, you know, I've cured cancer today. So yeah. it was incredibly rewarding. But the relationships were fantastic. But the, the really hard part was it was like looking after your best friends. I saw many of these women more often than I would see yeah, my friends I and bet. my extended family so you became very close but even though the majority would survive a significant number would die every year so it was like going to the funerals of your best friends over and over again and a dear friend of mine who's medical when I was saying I used to be a medical oncologist and uh, she was she was explaining to someone else why I stopped and she said Tab used to give a part of herself to every person Mm. that she saw Mm. but the problem was I ultimately gave away each and every one of those parts until yeah. I, I had nothing left. And and it was really difficult to, to draw boundaries around that kind of specialty because when people got sick, they needed help very quickly. Yeah. It was a 24-hour on-call job. And I think often what people don't appreciate about medicine is that there's the face-to-face clinical contact, but there's so much that goes on behind the mm. scenes in terms mm. of shadow work. So, you know, paperwork, running a large yeah. business, um, dealing with phone calls, and I really struggled to switch off. I, I felt really personally responsible for, for people if they did well, but also if they did poorly. And mm. and so I used to, uh, you know, probably be really tough on myself in terms of thinking what could I have done differently? How yeah. could I have made a, a different decision that may have changed the outcome for people? So it, it sadly mm. just ground me down over time. Oh, look, just listening to that, I'm, I'm not surprised to hear it. If you were giving of yourself so much... Mm. Um, and watching the sometimes tragic outcomes would be very, very draining. Mm. Mm. So that's a good segue into your career change. So in about 2018, I think, you trained to become a professional life coach and an organisational coach. You did touch on this, but just expand to us, why did you actually, what was the trigger that made you decide to change careers? You You were worn down. Did you... Did something happen that made the decision easy for you or did you just come to that decision over years of thinking about it? It was an interesting sort of combination of events. There were two things that happened in very close succession. One of them was I was working late one night and walked into a young girl's room who was dying of metastatic breast cancer. She would have been in her early 20s. Oh, and goodness. She was crying and my response was, I'll come back when you're finished and I walked out of the room and... Uh, I realised that I was no longer the doctor that I trained to be Mm -hmm. or wanted to be and I realised I'd completely blunted my emotional responses and had withdrawn from people. So that was point one and then a couple of, it was probably about a week later, once again working late, and I got a phone call from a stranger to say that they had my 10-year-old son and I'd forgotten to pick him up from football training late one winter's night and he'd been wandering around the streets until he'd found someone with a phone uh, and said, can you ring my mother? She's failed to pick me up. So it was that sense of I really wasn't doing anything very well. I was not being the doctor I wanted to be. I was failing abysmally as a mother. I probably wasn't a particularly good friend either. And so despite being in a job that I loved, Mm. people I loved, I was really investing in my own self-care. I just suddenly realised I couldn't do it anymore. I went and saw a psychologist and went into that appointment and walked out of that appointment and basically said, I'm done, sold my share in the practice, Wow. uh, left. So it was a very precipitous departure, Mm -hmm. but uh, certainly no regrets around that part of it. But then it was that interesting thing. It was about six months and I had a fabulous time. You know, I found the lids for all my Tupperware. (laughs) I Marie Kondo'd my wardrobe. Uh, I, you know, had a really wonderful time off. And then I woke up one morning with this acute sense of loss Mm -hmm. about what have I done walking away from medicine. And I realised I'd pinned so much of my ego and my reputation. Mm. And I guess who I was in the world was really based around my title and role as a doctor. And I felt that very acutely that I'd, what had I done walking away from that? And then the way the universe provides, I got a phone call that day from the CEO of Calvary North Adelaide saying, can you come and work in Mary Potter Hospice uh, Mm -hmm. for a few weeks? We're in crisis. And I went for three weeks and stayed for three years. So I worked in Mm. hospice looking after people who are dying and there is nothing that gives you a more acute focus on life Mm. than uh, sitting with people who are uh, at the end of their lives. 
Uh, and then it was during that that I really realised that everything I read was about positive psychology, yep. health and well-being, uh, and that I wasn't reading about medicine. So that's when I changed streams mm. dramatically and studied to be a coach. No, that's that's um, a, a fascinating but well thought out, I think, trajectory there. When you were at Mary Potter watching people at the end of their lives, so the people who are there, um, it's a palliative care facility, mm. isn't it? So they're not coming out. No. Um, did you see a common thread in what people said about their lives? Like, were there things that people regretted or wished they'd done more of? Or did you mm. get that sense? I think it really underpins those aspects of nobody ever regrets working too hard. Um, sorry, people will always regret actually working mm. too hard. What they regret is not spending time with family and mm -hmm. friends uh, and that so above all else relationships yep. matter. And you'd see that. You'd see very, very successful people who had no visitors and Aww. then you saw people who had devoted their life to their family and their mm. friends and the joy and the happiness and the just the sheer number of people who were in there sharing that was extraordinary. Uh, and then the other aspect, of course, was just how important our health and well-being are. That, yeah. You know, when suddenly when that is taken from you, that you realise that you wish you'd spent more time investing in your own health and well-being mm. so that you could live for as well as possible for as long as possible. Yeah. Um, I mean, I totally agree with that. And that's why I'm a nutrition scientist, mm. because I, you know, I want to live healthily and, and, and I want my family to live well. But the thing I've seen, and you must have seen this in your practice as an oncologist, is that sometimes there are people that do live well um, they have a healthy lifestyle, yet they still succumb at a young age to mm. cancer. Yeah, absolutely. So. And that is the thing. Young mm. patients who get cancer is not because of how they've lived. No. It relates to genes that they inherited or environmental exposures that they had that they could not have controlled yeah. for. Um, and it was incredibly sad. And I can remember at one stage in hospice when we had you know, a 25-year-old, a 35-year-old, a 45-year-old, mm -hmm. and... And each and every one of those people had done nothing to, to deserve no. or, or earn that cancer. So there is a, a proportion of patients where, unfortunately, they will be struck down. Mm. Um, but a lot of chronic disease, which is reversible or preventable mm. through lifestyle changes, so 30 to 50% of cancers are lifestyle-related, yeah. uh, and then so much of cardiovascular disease and yeah, respiratory type disease. type 2 diabetes. Diabetes, renal disease yeah. are all um, lifestyle-associated. And so I think for a lot of people it was reflecting on that and that opportunity mm. to look back and think, what would I do differently if I had my time over? Mm. And it also just makes you appreciate, you know, the value of the small things, the beauty of every day yeah. and all of those aspects. Well, that um, leads me to your business. So you established a coaching business after retraining and it's called Small Moments, Big Lives. And I, I love that name. Um, it's really creative. So for you, what does that convey? So it really is that aspect of when you focus on the, the small and beautiful details in life, a lot of the rest of it just sorts itself mm -hmm. out. And a lot of my clients come to me completely overwhelmed with the enormity of, of their challenges. And what we do is we break it down into very small parts and that if you just focus on making tiny little changes mm -hmm. that you'll gain that momentum and you know, for more of my you know, investment and engineering clients that I see, it's about the compounding interest process. Oh, right. So, yeah. you know, if you reinvest and reinvest yep. the interest every time, suddenly you turn around and you've had exponential growth yep. in your portfolio. And it's the same with your health and well-being. If you just make tiny little shifts each of those tiny little shifts mm. compounds and then it just becomes easier and easier with greater and greater benefit. And I think that's important for people to understand because it might, they might think, oh, if I make that small change, that's, that's so tiny, it's not going to lead mm. to much. But um, what you're saying is it might lead to another small change and so on and so on. Mm. And I think mm. the other really important thing to remind people of is because often people will come back and they'll say, oh, I did that and it was going really well and then I stopped and it's a disaster. And you say, well, no, you, you may have slipped back the curve mm. 
ever so slightly, but you won't have returned to, to ground zero. And so just explaining to people that that cumulative effect yes, and that if you slip, that's no problem at all. Just restart, readjust, mm. find another way forward and you'll get that benefit. Because, because changing habits is hard. Mm. You can't just... Well, most people can't just suddenly make a decision and change like that. You need to, as you say, you, it, it's um, it slips backwards and you mm. go forward and backwards, and but you know you keep moving towards the goal, I guess. Oh, absolutely. And there's all those the beautiful books, so B.J. Fogg, Tiny Habits, James mm. Clear, um, Atomic Habits, yes, which are probably on your bookshelf. Oh, my son's <laughs> my son's stolen my Atomic Habits. I really like that book. <laughs> but they have these beautiful concepts of too small to fail so you just make it that you're going to trip over it so you know for me trying to dis- get rid of my bingo arms it's i've got weights <laughs> in the bathroom bingo and uh, so you know it takes a while for the hot water to heat up so i lift you know weights while i'm <laughs> waiting for the hot water to come but it's also the aspect of um attaching it to something you already do so mm. something that's deeply ingrained attach your new behavior to that so a lot of my medical clients uh, who are doctors i'll say you know with your breath just attach it to every time you walk out to get a new patient just change your breath as you walk down the corridor so attach it to something else and then stack them from there i think before we delve more into your your work can you explain to us so we have a clear understanding of what's the difference between coaching and therapy and counseling Absolutely. And it's a, it's a common confusional state. Yeah, uh, yeah. So things like therapists, counsellors, psychologists, psychiatrists, all of them are focused on the fact that there is something wrong or something mm-hmm. that needs fixing. And they're often they delve into the past in order to manage the present. Coaching is about accepting that all of that has happened, draws a line in the sand, and it's about being forward-focused and saying there is nothing broken, there is nothing wrong, but let's tap into your innate strengths and abilities and allow you to really achieve the best that you can achieve. So I would say that therapists and counsellors are sort of mechanics who are Mm -hmm. fixing things that are broken and coaches are doing the the tuning of the engine to make it a high-performance machine. Oh, excellent. And do you think people could do both in tandem? Absolutely. There's yeah. many of my clients who are actually seeing psychologists mm-hmm. uh, and then, but they're sort of very, yes, focused on fixing. Yeah. And then they come to see me to say, okay, well, how can I fine tune my health and well-being? Mm. How can I be really forward focused? And it's interesting the number of people I see who have been seeing someone for a long period of time uh, for mental health issues, but then I do a health and well-being check and you discover that, you know, that alcohol is a very significant part of their life and or that they're not exercising or that they spend a significant amount of time on their phone and so actually adjusting those factors Mm. has an incredibly profound impact on their mental health and well-being and sometimes i imagine it takes um a third party an outside person to really draw people's attention to that Mm. oh Mm. i think we do we all get caught up in our lives and yeah and it's the way we all live now but we don't realize that we're slowly destroying ourselves (laughs) well you're here to save us Tabitha. Uh, The other thing I thought it would be good to get some clarity around is you offer personal coaching, wellness coaching, executive and organisational coaching. So I imagine they do overlap to some extent, but what are the subtle differences between those different types of coaching? And embarrassingly, all those words appear on my website really as part of my That's where SEO. They came my, from. <laughs> exactly. So it's, you know, it's my search engine optimization. So you put a whole lot of words in there so that you come up on multiple searches. But coaching basically these days can be for anything. So you'll have weight coaches, alcohol coaches, exercise coaches. Right. You can have business startups. You can have business startups for women. And when you train to be a coach, they really talk about that you've got to find your niche. Okay. And so, but for me, it just evolved. So I started out that I thought I was. Would be a cancer coach which was helping people get out the other side of their cancer treatment mm-hmm. but what rapidly evolved is that I've really become an executive coach so for professionals yeah. who are looking to perform in either leadership roles or to be their best health and well-being wise most of my clients now would be doctors mm-hmm. um, and sadly COVID's been extremely good for business for me so um, the, the burnout rates in the medical space are unfortunately astronomical and so people have been coming to see me to help them navigate their way through surviving in the public health space Uh, and I see quite a few engineers um, accountants lawyers so they're often quite uh, they're professionals uh, and they're looking at how do they maximize their health and well-being Mm -hmm. and what would you say the split is between men and women so I've 
previously, I think about six months ago, I would have said 70% women, 30% men, mm-hmm. but I've had this spate. I had a very, very happy customer and he's <laughs> gone out there and he has been doing wonders for my business. So I've never actually advertised, so it's all word of mouth, but I've changed his life. And so great. I have this spate of men in their 40s at the moment, which is great. And I really enjoy working with them. So it's probably gone to 50 50. Mm. And probably 30% of what I do is people come about health and well being. 30% will come with burnout mm-hmm. and 30% will become will be coming on the basis of maximising their leadership potential. Right. Oh, that's a really good split, isn't it? Mm. Interesting. And if uh, you mentioned that there are many in there around their 40s, mm. that's probably the age where you start to question, what am I doing? <laughs> Absolutely. And it's that is this it? Yeah. And then they almost panic and go, oh, God, if this is it, I'm not sure I can keep doing yes. this. And so I do. I think it is a point of re-evaluation. You've been in your career often for you know 10 or 15 years. Mm. Often they're sandwiched between young kids and aging yeah. parents, uh, usually have neglected their own health and well-being along the way, and they end up in crisis. Mm. And anyway, sounds like you've been very helpful, certainly to one man. (laughs) I'm sure many more than that. I should give him a little shout out because he's been fabulous in business. Um, And you say you help people achieve what matters. So what does matter? How do we find out what matters? (laughs) I think the issue there, it's incredibly personal Mm. and it's different for every person. The people who know what matters and know how to get there, they're not seeing me. Yeah, There are the people who come knowing what matters, but they're struggling to to make it. And Mm -hmm. then there are those that are so completely overwhelmed that they've got absolutely no idea. And their answer to everything initially is, I don't know. Right. And they just need first aid. They need to break it back down to to looking after their health and well-being, to allow their minds to start clearing enough that they can start to identify what matters. Majority of people, it does come down again to health and well-being, career Mm -hmm. success and relationships tend to be the three factors that underpin what's most important for people. Mm -hmm. So you said some people know, some people don't know. So you, do you think deep down people know, but they just need help to identify it? Mm. I, I think most of us do, but it is... Sometimes our lives are just so noisy and our brains are so fried that we can't see a way through it. And there's this beautiful Buddhist quote that I use a lot from a a gentleman called Sogol Rinpoche, who was second in line to the Dalai Lama. Mm -hmm. Um, He's now deceased, but his line was, water that is not stirred becomes clear. And it's that beautiful metaphor that if you keep churning your way through the dirt, you churn up the mud and you can't see anything. But if you sit quietly for a period of time, the silt will settle and the water will become clear. And so often for people, it's just allowing them to to settle enough and the answer will actually rise to the surface. Mm. It's certainly not my role to tell people what's important. Uh, It wouldn't work. Um, My role is to help people find their way back to that. So once people have uncovered what matters to them, what next? I mean, they might need small changes, big changes. How do you help guide them through the next steps? Great question. So some people will come and simply the act of sitting and talking to me about the problem, Mm -hmm. they go, oh, that's what I need to do. Done. One session, gone. I did absolutely nothing apart from provide a glass of water. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, that's a great outcome. Uh, Other people, it is about delving into, you know, the process may involve looking at how are they going in all segments of their life? So mm-hmm. there's a very simple tool tool called the Wheel of Life and you get people to rate from zero to ten how satisfied they are with aspects of their life such as their career, their family, fun and recreation, personal growth. And then when they see that in a visual form, people yeah. go, oh, that's really out of alignment and then they shift their focus to that. Sometimes it's looking at people's strengths, their values. Often it's just the process of talking. Mm. And the thing that's beautiful about coaching is that you really put all of that back to the client. Yeah. So after all those years in medicine where it's it's such a paternalistic field, we, the doctors, are the experts, and we tell people what yeah. to do and we instruct them. But what we know is that that's not particularly effective for making change. So compliance rates with you know chronic long-term medication for patients in Australia is about 50%, which is, that is appallingly all? Mm. low. And that's just because people don't feel committed to the outcome. Whereas yeah. in coaching, when you you get the client to decide what it is 
they want to do mm. and what are the steps that they wish to take, the level of engagement and the level of compliance is significantly yeah. higher. So it's really satisfying to see that and to see people who come in who aren't, they answer everything with I don't know or they're crying uncontrollably for the first session and their worlds are just imploding. Mm-hmm. And then to see them bouncing back through the door, you know, sort of a couple of months later and they've made those changes, they've taken back control is just so incredibly yeah. satisfying. So How rewarding. It's, it's, mm. it, it is and it's very different for, for each person. So yeah. some people might be that one session, some people might might be four sessions in quick you know quick um, intervals and then other people I will then see them every few months just yeah. to keep them accountable yeah. keep them on track that makes me think of for example people who might want to give up smoking mm-hmm. everyone can tell them smoking's bad for you <laughs> give up but it's not until they make that decision themselves mm-hmm. and take sort of ownership of it that it actually will happen oh absolutely and we can come back around to that with hypnosis but People have to want to make yeah. the change. And there are a number of clients who I'll see and they're not making any shifts. And I just say, look, it's not worth you spending your money at the moment. Mm. Go away and come back and see me when you're fully committed yeah. to, to actually making a difference. And I can guide you to get there. Mm. It could be that a client like that, perhaps someone's told them, you know, you should go and see a life coach. Or <laughs> <laughs> and you do screen for that, you know, what brings you here? Yeah. And, and if somebody's saying, oh, my wife sent me along, you go, okay, well, oh. maybe we need to look at your motivation. <laughs> but majority of people will be coming because it's that they've actioned it themselves. Yeah. And that's the buy-in that you need. Yes. You need people to be saying, this is what I want. And you need them to be sort of making that contractual agreement with themselves. Yeah, yeah. and I think... Um, it's, it's not like, but a similar um, scenario is when you go to see a personal trainer, mm-hmm. you've, you've paid the money. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> you know, so even if you don't feel like going, you go. Absolutely. So you've made that commitment. Mm. That's why mm. I had a person, before I got a dog, I had a personal trainer for about 10 years and it was, I'd paid my money, they were yeah. expecting me to turn up and that was what I needed to do to get yeah. me to X. So how do you think your career then as an oncologist assisted you in your current work as a life coach? So I think every one of the jobs I've had throughout my life has really contributed. And so, you know, I started at Kentucky Fried Chicken when I was 15 Mm -hmm. and then I worked at Sizzler, a really dodgy pub, uh, a restaurant while I was at med school. Then there was, I've worked in Darwin, I've worked overseas, um, the Royal Adelaide Hospital, which is always trial by fire. Uh, So, (laughs) And then obviously oncology and palliative care. And I think each and every one of those jobs taught me how to communicate with Mm -hmm. anyone, Mm. to be comfortable in any social circumstance, um, with people from any background. Yeah. And I think the most valuable lesson was to be able to sit with people in deep, deep distress. So nothing phases me. So however distressed or disturbed somebody is, um, I can sit very, very comfortably Mm. in that and I don't shy away from it and I don't try to shut it down. So I think that's been incredibly valuable. And then the medical background has been fabulous for the coaching space because everything that I do is based in science and there's evidence to back it Mm -hmm. up. And I find that ability to be able to discuss someone's nervous system or hormonal system um, to understand what medications they're taking is really, really valuable. Yeah, of course. And I think the other big safety aspect of that is that I can also recognise if this is not a problem that needs coaching, if this is something far more significant that Mm -hmm. requires intervention or requires medical investigation. So I think it's a really safe space from that point of view. the, The challenge in the coaching space is it's entirely unregulated anybody can call themselves a coach and when i think of some of the things that i've seen and dealt with over the last uh, two to three years i would be really horrified if that was being dealt with by somebody who had no solid background in either health or well-being Mm -hmm. is there some kind of um, accrediting body that you can um you know join or absolutely so i have accredited coaching certification and i'm with the international coaches federation and i'm a professional member of the um, health coaches australia and new zealand but i didn't need to be right and nobody needs to be so it's probably a little bit like the nutrition space someone can say i'm a nutritionist yeah do a weekend course somewhere yeah Mm. absolutely so anybody could say that they're a coach um and then it's often that issue i think people really need to just drill in a little bit to what's their background what are their credentials and i think for a lot of coaches and um, not to talk down the industry but there are fabulous coaches out there who have come from various fields Mm. and they bring that expertise with them into that space so i think you want to be seeing someone who's had a previous career in that space and then the coaching's just taken it to the next level yeah I think that's a a really good point because a lot of what you do 
I think your life experience brings a lot to mm. that, you know, Absolutely. having worked in lots of different environments and spaces. Mm. And what do you enjoy most about working as a life coach? Oh, it's fabulous. And people who knew me when I was in the depths of oncology say I look very different and much happier <laughs> these days. But uh, so it's the autonomy. I've never been able to work for anybody else. It says something about my personality there. <laughs> At I'm least not, you know that, though. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I'm really not good with authority. So uh, being autonomous, being self-employed is mm-hmm. really important to me. Uh, being flexible. And that was the other thing about the age, age that my kids were at was needing to be able to you know, rearrange my life yeah. to be there for them. Uh, because at the end of the day, that is the most important responsibility that I have in this world is um, looking after those two and making sure that they're set on the right path in life. Uh, it's the ability to turn people's lives around. And yeah. it is just so incredibly satisfying to see that. Uh, it's great fun. My clients are great. <laughs> um, so I have a really enjoyable day. Probably the only Sad thing about it is working alone. So you know, I came from working in a very oh, big, course, busy yeah. practice, lots of people around, uh, and now I work alone. So it, it's that isolation which is probably the only drawback from that point of view. Mm. Although you're not really alone because you're with your clients. but I, I, Series of clients, yeah. absolutely. But there's it's part of being a community, and yes. I think community is so important in terms of job satisfaction, and that's partly why the hypnosis space has opened mm. up a bit for me as well. So, Tabitha, I always like people to get some positive and practical messages from my podcast. So I've picked a couple of topics that I'd like you to speak to so you can give us some, some sage advice. One of the things that you um, emphasize is investing in yourself. And on your website, you say successful people invest in themselves. So how can that look? What, what form can investing in yourself take? So this really comes back to that issue that you need to invest in yourself in order to be able to look after others. Mm-hmm. And women in particular tend to make sure that everybody else is sorted and then they put themselves last on the yeah. list. But then you end up absolutely exhausted with nothing left to give. And people often see self-care as, you know, self-indulgent or they feel guilty for doing it. But in actual fact, investing in yourself is the act of generosity to others. Uh, and there's this great quote by um, Greg McEwen from Essentialism, which is that if you don't prioritise your life, someone else will. So it's yeah, really your point. responsibility to what do you need to be able to be your best self in order to then serve and care for others. And the framework that I really use for that in the workshops that I run for corporate groups or in my private sessions is firstly really educating people about stress, what Mm -hmm. it is, what the impact that is on your body, and that may be short-term in terms of priming your autonomic nervous system and your stress hormones, the impact that that has on your brain and your ability to be able to think clearly and make decisions in terms of the impact on your amygdala and your frontal lobes, And then the third tier that I talk about is really the long-term impacts of stress on these beautiful things called your telomeres, which are the little things that sit on the end of your DNA. They're Mm -hmm. like a little bit of plastic on the end of your shoelace. Michael Mosley likes to talk about them. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, it was an Australian doctor, Elizabeth Blackburn, who won the Nobel Prize for discovering telomeres. And I think that should be, we should almost have a national Good on you, Liz. Absolutely. (laughs) Extraordinary. Tasmanian. So, you know, we really under-celebrate her successes. But so like when you lose the plastic on the end of your shoelace Mm. and your shoelace unravels if you wear your telomeres down over time through chronic stress your dna actually starts to unravel as well so you start to develop chronic diseases of aging such as diabetes hypertension heart disease dementia cancer and what we know is that if you reduce stress that you can grow your telomeres back so discussing that with patients is really useful Um, it motivates them to make the change and it also demonstrates that it's never too late to make those changes And the structure that I put around that, I call it holding the space for well-being. And space stands for sleep, pause, appreciation, connecting with compassion and energy, which comes down to exercise and what you eat. So I use that framework. And the reason I've chosen that is that each and every one of those aspects has been demonstrated through really good, solid, randomized control trial evidence that it makes a difference. It downregulates your sympathetic nervous system, puts you back into your functional frontal lobes. It allows you to regrow your telomeres and it has an incredible benefit through those aspects. And it's also teaching people about the fact that stress is your response to a situation. So the event is what it is, Mm -hmm. but stress is your decision. 
And I'm very happy to speak to any one of those aspects around health and well-being, if you like. But uh, so you know, I can speak to any of those. Well, actually, one thing I have been thinking as you've been talking about that is stress. Everyone says, I'm stressed, I'm stressed. Mm. But is stress different for everybody? Like one something that might stress, like you sound like you don't get that stress seeing people in, um, you know, uh, probably say someone who's hurt themselves and m- some people would be terrified and run away. You, you could deal with that. Mm. So that might not stress you, but it would stress someone else. As long as so, there's no blood. If there's yeah. blood, then oh, I'm a complete okay. disaster. No blood. Bad example, bad example. <laughs> not at all. And, but no, you're absolutely right. And we all have the ability to adjust that. And the example that I give is of a guy called Alex Honnold. And if you haven't seen it, there's a great film oh, called Free Solo. Totally love it. Yeah. So <laughs> Alex was a, well, he is a, a free client which means he climbs without ropes and Alex growing up had a social anxiety so when he was learning to climb he couldn't ask anyone in the climbing gym to belay his ropes so he learnt to climb without them and the film Free Solo is about him climbing without ropes a 3,000 foot sheer cliff um, called El Capitan in uh, uh, Yosemite National Park and this climb normally takes climbers with ropes a couple of days and they sleep out overnight and Alex climbed it in 3 hours and 56 minutes no ropes and the people who were the most stressed with the cameramen because mm. they thought they were there to film him die and so I think that's just such a beautiful example and he just climbs it and he's completely chill and he just makes every move and he knows what he's doing and so events will happen to us and dreadful things will happen to us but our response is completely within our control yes and you do see that there are people where the smallest thing will will set them off and mm. there are other people who are just like Yoda and nothing just bothers them at all and they seem to float through life and I'm constantly struggling in that space. I'm, you know, working very hard to reduce my reactivity. And there's that other lovely quote, Viktor Frankl, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, yes. which was between stimulus and response, there is a space. And within that space lies our power to choose our response. And so I think that's really vital to, to how you can make an extraordinary difference to your life. And mm. And I would see that in cancer all the time. You know, there'd be 35-year-olds dying with, you know, they had young children, but they would say, my life has been incredible. Yeah. I wouldn't change a thing. I've been so blessed. Mm. And I'd see 95-year-olds who were furious yeah, that they yeah. were dying and angry about the way they'd lived their life. So you know, we have choices as to how we approach that. And absolutely, there are things that are really, really tough, but there are things that you can do yeah. to downregulate and make that response as, as functional as possible. It's a very Buddhist approach, mm. isn't it? Absolutely. You know, we, we are in control of our reactions. Mm. Something will happen. We can't control that, but we can control, as you say, how we approach that. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. And it's then investing in those aspects of your own self-care and well-being through mm. the, the sleep, the pausing, the, you know, the appreciation exercise, what you eat. All of those things allow you to take back control of your emotional response. Connecting with your breath is absolutely vital. And so each and every one of those will allow you to slow that reactivity so that you can respond in a manner that is appropriate for the event and that doesn't send you into free fall. And what about appreciation? Tell me a little bit about that. So I frame a lot of that in terms of gratitude And gratitude is about recognising what you have rather than what you don't. Mm. We're all born with a really strong negativity bias and that's a survival mechanism. It's that you're looking out for danger and you're looking out for trouble. But, you know, in our privileged and safe lives that we now lead, we still tend to look for the negatives and we complain and we get stuck in that space. But if you can train your mind to start noticing what's going right Mm -hmm. rather than what's going wrong... And it's about being grateful for the things around you and the people. And it's learning to say thank you. And this is great figure, which is that in order to give people constructive feedback, your ratio of gratitude to feedback needs to be seven to one. But when you think about particularly personal relationships, most of us would be the reverse. We would criticize, 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 and then we would say thank you. And so (laughs) that loses its power. So just if people can start to to shift that being Mm -hmm. grateful, um, saying thank you, and and that needs to be honest, it needs to be in real time, and it needs to be frequent. And there's this lovely simple shift that I talk to people about of rather than saying I have to do this and dragging yourself through the day of saying I get to do I this. I get to, yeah. And I think when you live in Adelaide and, you know, or Australia in general, um, 
most of us can do that. We yeah. have such a safe and affluent life compared to, to so many people. And it, it really is just where you shift your attention and your focus. And then there's obviously the appreciation aspect, which links into mindfulness, which yeah. is having that awareness of your surroundings. Mm-hmm. And particularly for me, that is nature yeah. and that beauty and awe that comes with being just noticing nature around you and you know as we head into spring that wonder the seasonal change change. yeah Mm. so each day just focusing on those small things one of my favorite quotes that i try and live by that ties into what you just said is want what you have don't want what you don't have so in other words appreciate what Mm. you've got absolutely Um, and don't always hanker after the next best thing yeah And we just get into mental habits. And if you develop an awareness about your thought patterns, you can then just start Mm. to shift them and you just slowly move down a different pathway. And I guess that's where you come in because people may not be able to recognize that they're stuck in certain Mm. thought patterns. Maybe no one's questioned it before. They uh, and so having their eyes opened up to that would be very helpful, obviously. Absolutely. Mm. So another thing that um, you help people with is setting boundaries. And I think most of us know this is something that we should do or could do, but it's one thing to know about it and I think it's another thing to implement it. Mm. So perhaps, Tabitha, you could give us some tips on a few simple things we could do to help us set boundaries and also why that's important. (laughs) If we don't set boundaries, we just simply don't get time mm-hmm. to prioritise what's important. You'll get lost just being dragged in a million different directions. And setting boundaries is really about acknowledging to yourself and asking the world to acknowledge that you are important and that you matter and that your time matters. And there's lots of different boundaries in terms of personal boundaries, mental boundaries, mm-hmm. emotional, physical, financial But what I tend to talk about most with people is the boundaries around how you use your time so that that then allows the space to do the things that you need and want to do. Mm -hmm. And the challenge is that um, people really struggle often to identify what it is that's important because you need to identify what's important and move from there. So I talk about the four C's of boundaries, and that is you need to be clear Mm -hmm. on what matters most to you. You need to be consistent about that if you keep changing people won't know or you won't know what you're focusing on you need to communicate them and this is often a really big issue for people they have their own personal boundaries but they fail to tell anybody else about them and then they get upset that people keep stepping over their boundaries Mm -hmm. and then the final c is you need to have consequences for if they're broken that's particularly if other people keep breaking them what, what, what do you mean, like personal consequences or? So it might be saying, I will not tolerate that behavior or that's okay. not appropriate. Yep. So just being clear around that. Um, an example I often use is is the erosion of our time with you know, work eroding into our personal time, mm-hmm. particularly with working from home that's been an issue. So yep. if we use the model of managing emails after hours, so the, the clear aspect of that would be saying, I will not answer emails after hours yeah the communicating that will be having a conversation with your boss and your colleagues around that this is the behavior that we expect within this organization being consistent would be that you don't actually answer the emails after hours and that you turn your notifications off you take it off your phone and then the final one is consequences of saying well people will be spoken to about that And, and i love in that space that so in 2014 in germany and 2017 in france in france yeah. law yes that um companies that sent emails after hours would actually be fined and then in i think it's portugal and belgium at the beginning of 2022 they have um, put laws in around managers contacting workers mm. after hours to, in order to give people back that that boundary and that yeah. space after hours it's a shame that it needs to to take laws Mm. to do that but uh, at least that is one way of making it effective I think people are becoming more aware of that Um, one of the women I interviewed recently she's she's quite young she's a scientist she said that she tells all her students I will not respond to any emails outside these hours. And so the expectation's there, Mm. and I think that's really good. And that's beautiful. She's set clear boundaries. Mm. She's communicated them. She's going to be consistent. Yeah. And she will probably give feedback quite strongly to those students Mm. who don't respect that. So that's a beautiful example of how you set that up. And that's her acknowledging the importance of her own life and her time outside of that. 
Mm. And I'm sure it makes her a, a more effective worker as oh, well. Absolutely. Mm. Gandhi was the one who said, I'm so busy today, I'm going to need to meditate for two hours, not one. So oh, yes. it's that, that putting boundaries in to say, this is what matters, this is what my priorities are. And if, if you don't have boundaries and you, you just then tend to get eroded and it's a very high risk for increasing resentment and it's one of the greatest links to burnout is having yeah. very poor boundaries. Mm. It's something I think that it would be useful for people to be taught about this in schools mm. as young. I don't know if they are or not, but we certainly weren't. Um, skills like life skills like that are so important, aren't they? And it's a shame, I think, for someone like me learning all of that at the age of 50. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think they're doing it more with physical. So I mm. guess in the whole sexual oh, yes, assault they space, are. there's mm. really strong work going on in terms of having clear physical boundaries and communicating those. And then I hope that they're taking it the next level from there in terms of emotional boundaries. Tabitha, you mentioned earlier that you are very interested in medical hypnosis. So I'd really love to just touch on that because it's something that, you know, I think a lot of people, including me, don't know a lot about. So what, first of all, what is it? <laughs> well, I guess if I introduce with how I came to, yeah. to connect with it. So when I was a medical student, I developed a very weird disorder called cluster headaches. And these are weird headaches that occur at exactly the same time every day. So for me, it was 2.15 in the afternoon and they're absolutely crippling, can't oh. function. So I would have to be in bed in a dark room by 2.15 every day, which was not particularly useful at university. No. And I went through so many doctors, so many drugs. And after a long period of time, I was sent to see a psychiatrist because I think they just decided that I was um, crazy. And thankfully, this psychiatrist was a hypnotherapist. And he said, oh, you've got cluster headaches. We can deal with this with hypnosis. Wow. And so one session of hypnosis and he fixed them. So Isn't that amazing? Nine months of horrendous pain and 45 minutes with him and they were gone. So that was this wow. incredible first introduction to the power of this in terms of our ability to regulate our own thoughts, feelings, behaviours, the way our body functions. And I really forgot about it for a long period of time. And then when I was working in hospice where pain and anxiety are such strong symptoms mm -hmm. and what frustrated me was that really we don't have great ways of dealing with that. We used to yeah. escalate narcotics or escalate anti-anxiety yeah. drugs, often to the point that people were very sedated. Yeah, exactly. And so That's a problem. awful from that point of view. But then seeing that by sitting and talking to somebody, you could often bring them down. You could treat their pain through speech and calm and relaxation and you could deal with their anxiety and so that's when I started formally studying hypnosis had just some amazing experiences of using it in hospice and I now work one day a week with a group called Glow Hypnosis who mm -hmm. are in Adelaide it was set up by uh, Dr Goldblatt who's an anaesthetist Dr Loki who's a general practitioner and the focus was on having qualified medical professionals working in that space uh, and it's great fun and I now use it very commonly in my coaching practice as mm -hmm. well it's it's incredibly useful for people who are stuck and, you know, they desperately want to change. But yep. There's something that's just blocking them. Hypnosis is really great for navigating your way around those blocks. Right. So that was one of my questions. What are its applications? Mm. Uh, so. Vast. Yes. Would be my thing. So yeah, and the, the more that I do it, the more I realize, oh, we can do that and that. And so it really comes under a few headings. And that would be so from a health perspective, you know, stopping smoking mm -hmm. is one of the common ones, helping people lose weight, uh, changing their relationship with alcohol, which is incredibly important. Yeah. Uh, from a mental health perspective, unbelievable results with anxiety, uh, fears, phobias, those sorts of aspects, uh, amazing impacts in trauma and people who've had deep trauma that they struggle to move on from. Uh, and then there's habits such as hope, smoking would fall into that as well. But, you know, nail biting, trichotillomania, right. which is pulling out hair, mm -hmm. ticks, those sorts of things. So really, really vast. Uh, one of the colleagues I work with does great work with irritable bowel syndrome, helps people with IVF. So really extraordinary. And then clearly for me as well, pain. So in the chronic pain space, it can be incredibly effective. And it's about teaching people to take back control. Right. It's fascinating because... It's clearly effective mm. and we're not using drugs. Oh, absolutely. So it's, it's the, the it's, brain's amazing. The, the brain is absolutely incredible. And each time I, I talk about the fact that, you know, it's great that you often ask people to close their eyes in hypnosis because they can't see me going, 
oh wow this is amazing (laughs) so it's still just i'm so excited every time i see it use it and the outcomes and the the feedback Mm -hmm. that i get from people but it is about yes teaching people to control their own minds and bodies and it's a it's a fascinating process and i think the reason you know it's not mainstream because we still really struggle to understand what it is that we're doing Mm -hmm. but the process involves people to become very relaxed highly focused so you really get them to to concentrate and focus Mm -hmm. you get them to really engage their imagination and then connect with emotions and that's taking their sort of logical conscious mind off to one side and distracting it and then you drop suggestions down into their subconscious Mm -hmm. mind and that's where you just get these incredible changes but i remember seeing a woman who'd had a, a deep deep trauma um in a relationship and that had been about four years ago and since then she'd had just dreadful nightmares every night woke up cold sweat terrified every night and uh, a couple of sessions of hypnosis and these nightmares had just gone she went back in hypnosis and resolved the issue that was recurring and came out and it was they just simply disappeared and and people with really crippling anxiety so you know i remember a woman who couldn't actually make it to the first session because she couldn't leave her room um, due to agoraphobia so we had Mm. a session over zoom which was less than ideal she made it to the next appointment sort of had a panic attack at the time and then third appointment really well and she cancelled her fourth appointment because she said i'm I'm off interstate <laughs> and so it was that incredible mm. thing of just being able to often in a very very short period of time make immense changes and it's great it's it's got no side effects it's yeah uh, incredible well tolerated mm. worst thing that can happen is someone feels relaxed <laughs> best thing that can happen is, is that people have an exceptional response yeah it's not addictive although I have some clients who keep coming back because they love the state of hypnosis so much and then you your aim is to teach people to self-hypnotize right so that they can drop themselves in and out of that right. state as they need to. Do you know, it sounds a little bit like Buddhist meditation, mm. people that have been practicing it for their lives. Mm. They, they can reach that, that state of pure concentration, mm. but that takes a lifelong daily practice. Mm. So it sounds like a fast track to that type of thing. Absolutely. And they're very similar. So, And the way I describe it to people is, is that guided meditation is about being yes, deeply relaxed and it's about softening your focus of your mm. thoughts and it's about identifying your emotions and just sitting with them. Hypnosis is about actually increasing that focus, increasing your clarity. It's like turning it up so it's super bright and yep. super clean. And then it's identifying those emotions, but then you're enacting change. So it is. But, yeah, you can achieve that in one session with someone wow. rather than years and years of practice. Can it be traumatic Like if the, the focus is something traumatic? Absolutely, which is why people who don't have experience in trauma training mm-hmm. should not be doing trauma right. hypnosis because right. they, you establish trust, you gently go there. What has been shown is that discussing trauma out of trance is far more distressing than in trance. Is that right? So it's that slight dissociation that occurs in trance mm-hmm. that allows it to be safer. But you also equip people before you get there. You yep. equip them with strengths. You equip them with the fact that they know that they are safe. Mm-hmm. And then you guide them back to almost before the trauma and you take everything that people have learnt as they've gone through life. So you take often their adult self back to protect and prevent damage to that child self. Mm. So, but it, it's that thing of you, you wouldn't want somebody who hasn't had appropriate yeah. training to be delving into that space. And my very senior colleagues talk about people that have come to them that have had inappropriate hypnosis right. elsewhere that has been harmful that they've then needed to undo that harm and that's i guess the benefit of glow hypnosis is that it's it's a practice that's run by doctors Doctors, nurses psychotherapists and psychologists and everybody has this strong safe grounding in a medical background and that they've had appropriate training and that we've got that expertise within the group to ensure that people are safe and then whatever they bring to to that setting can be dealt with either with moving you know talking about it amongst the practitioners and and using that experience Mm, that really sounds like um it could be um, a solution for a lot of people. It's amazing. Yeah. And I'd say to people, you know, 
just try it. If, yeah. if it doesn't work, you've lost nothing. Yeah. But if it works, it's just amazing, life changing, incredible. There was a young woman I saw earlier in the year who needed a life saving operation for cancer. She couldn't even make it to the doctor's appointment. She had such a strong medical and hospital mm. phobia, and we had three sessions in in rapid, you know, uh, sequence, and she had her operation and did really well. So it's that overcoming things yeah. that seem insurmountable, and people then go, "Oh, okay," and it almost seems to ex- disappear from their memory. It's incredible! Yeah, so. Wow. So how, where did you learn hypnosis? So I did it with a group called the South Australian Society of Hypnosis, which is for people who have a background in medicine mm-hmm. or health. Yep. So it's for psychologists, nurses or yep. doctors. So it's got that very strong grounding. Yeah. And then that really was just the starting point. And so it's layering on that and just then seeking out further um, experience and courses and uh, uh qualifications on top of that and I think it's going to be one of those lifelong learning situations well as you say because we don't really know the mechanisms by which it works It, it will be a lifelong quest, Absolutely. And there's mm. increasing work being done on functional MRI scans and people who are hypnotised and they can show that there are various areas of the brain that mm. down-regulate and up-regulate. But, you know, so we, we can see the changes on yes. EEGs and MRIs. But, yes, our, our true level of understanding of this infinite possibility of the unconscious mind is we're just at the, at the beginning. How fascinating. I could talk about this all day, <laughs> but we better wrap up. Yeah. <laughs> Tabitha, you've had an extraordinary career. You've it spans so many different areas, and we haven't even talked about all of them today. So, what do you think are some of the most important lessons that you've learnt um, in your life, in your career? I'm glad you gave me the heads up on this. This was a really lovely reflective piece. If you'd just pulled this one on me, I would have um, probably struggled. <laughs> so, number one was Kentucky Fried Chicken, and so there I learned that you need to clean as you go, uh, <laughs> which is deal with one issue at a time and then move on to the next mm-hmm. one. So that was a really valuable life lesson for me. I think it's made me very effective and productive. And the other thing I learned there was that potato and gravy is not actually food. So I it's think that's disgusting. Yeah, very valuable Poutine. for people to know. Absolutely. <laughs> um, in, co- in oncology and palliative care, it was definitely the fact that you only get one life. And you are the person that gets to choose how you live that life. So stop blaming other people. Stop making excuses. Stop saying, I'll get to that in the future. Choice is yours and it's up to you. Uh, and then the third one is, is that health and well-being underpin everything. Mm-hmm. Our relationships are what sustain us. And it's our sense of purpose that keeps us moving forward. And then the final number four would be the fact that just to continue to be curious and to be constantly learning. So I think that's the pleasure I've had in the career path that I've taken is that constant reinvention, that constant thirst for knowledge and new things is what keeps me highly motivated and energised. That's wonderful. Yeah, you've been – I don't want to use the word lucky because – that sounds like it's fallen in your lap. You've been you've been very deliberate about your career choices, but it's you know it's it's given you this amazing life. Has been yeah. spectacular. Unfortunately, sometimes it's been running away from things, but often it's moving towards other things. So, mm. no, and it, it's certainly a privilege. I you know, I have been living in an environment that has given me the opportunities to be able to do that. Mm, mm. And recognizing that's important too, mm. isn't it? As you said earlier, we're very lucky here in Australia. Absolutely. Mm. And who or what inspires you? So the who, number one, would be Ida Buttrose, bizarrely. But uh, that came from being at an international women's lunch uh, many, many years Mm -hmm. ago. And she's just a phenomenal woman. She is so intelligent, driven, um, courageous. But she must have been about 75 at this lunch. And she said, you just need to never stop making yourself uncomfortable. And at the age of 75, she was learning to surf. Oh, good on her. She just completely captivated me with that. Uh, And the fact that, you know, she's now chairman of the ABC board. Amazing. So she's my professional idol. My personal idol is my mother, as it is for many people. But my mum still, she, dad died about 20 years ago. And she's lived on a very big property up in the hills and she's still at 79 manages this sort of 10 acre garden pretty much on her own and she's just she's tough she's brave she's so practical Mm. anytime I've been in crisis in my life she is the one that just is there and helps me through it so she's my rock 
And what inspires me is absolutely nature. It's yeah. you know, whenever I need to decompress and reset, it's just about getting outdoors and reconnecting with nature. I thought you were going to say that. <laughs> I think we're two peas in a pod in, in that way. Yeah. And um, my final question, you've given us lots of good advice already, but if you could recommend two things that people could do to improve their well-being, what would they be? Yep, slightly uh, left of centre for people, but look at your relationship with alcohol. So I think that is what I'm seeing more and more is mm-hmm. that uh, what's called grey zone drinking is a huge problem. Right. And so people are functional, but they don't realise the impact that alcohol is having on their lives, destroying their sleep, huge impact on anxiety yep. and depression, completely screws up their sort of regulation of their insulin and their mm. their body system. So really look at your relationship with alcohol. And my advice in that space is that you should drink very good quality with great people for a good reason yeah and beyond that you're using it for you know it's a problem rather than an enjoyment and my second one is review your relationship with digital technology so i think it's invaded every aspect of our lives it is completely rewiring the right way our brains work it's destroying our dopamine regulation uh and i think so many people come to me completely overwhelmed And they say, I've got no time. And the first thing I do is actually take their phone and look at their screen time. And the average use for adult Australians on their phones is three hours and 15 minutes a day, which leads to about 22 hours a week. Imagine what you could do with that time. Absolutely. (laughs) And that's what you say to people. So adjust your relationship with your phone and then you get back basically two full working days. And you can then choose appropriately and mindfully how you spend that time and that can be exercise meditation it can be shopping for great food so that you nourish your body appropriately Mm -hmm. so yep review your relationship with alcohol review your relationship with your phone and i think you'll find that just time and space opens up and then so many of these other aspects will just fall into place so beautifully Mm. and that's really great advice so thank you for that tabitha and if people want to contact you or, or see your website, what's the best way for them to do that? So I'm tabithahealy.com. So basically, if you Google coach mm-hmm. and Tabitha in the same sort of sentence, <laughs> I'll come up on Google. And then I'm also at Glow Hypnosis, okay. which is spelled G-L-O, uh, and that's in North Adelaide. I'll put links to that in the show notes. So thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. It's been really lovely to meet you. And finally, we, <laughs> we know a lot of common people. So <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Wow, what an excellent human. So much of what Tabitha shared with us was not only inspirational, but practical and real as well. For me, I think at the top of the list was her own example of changing careers, recognizing that she was no longer living in alignment with her values and making a really brave transition. I'm sure not everyone would have the courage to do that, but having role models like Tabitha out there is really helpful. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Dr. Tabitha Healy. If you did, please share the podcast and tell your friends about it. Word of mouth is still one of the best ways for people to find out about Vibrant Lives podcast. Please do follow me on Instagram at vibrant underscore lives underscore podcast or on Facebook at Vibrant Lives Podcast. On my website at vibrantlivespodcast.com, you'll find a library of all my former podcast episodes and reviews of books related to health and well-being that I recommend. So please DM me or send me a message via the contacts page on my website and let me know what you'd like to hear more of or if you'd just like to say hi, I'd love to hear from you. Coming up, I've got clinical nutritionist and former Olympian Celeste Ferraris talking to us about the link between food and mood. So I'm looking forward to sharing that one with you. This podcast is recorded on ancient Ghana land. I acknowledge the Ghana people as the traditional custodians of this land and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Thank you so much for tuning in. Eat well, move well, think well, live vibrantly.